Hello, everyone, and welcome to MedHeadosNet Podcast, Season 4, Episode 9. Thank you for joining us live on YouTube, Facebook, and X. And to all of you who will be listening to us on your favorite podcast platform later on, we appreciate you tuning in. It is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. I'm your host, Vic Slanyan, and as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Mr. Mike Ballian, where we discuss our great Armenian history, covering different eras, topics, and people. Please hit that like button, make sure you are subscribed, and share with your friends and family. If you like what we are doing at the Medhelosnet Podcast, please consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash and become a Patreon. We have different tiers. Starts at $5, $10, $20. And if you become the $20 Patreon, Mike will come out and hang out with you as well. <laughs> have a couple drinks. <laughs> there you go. A cigar. <laughs> I'm dragging you with me. Oh, I'll, I'm, I'm there. I'm okay. there. Uh, you get the two you, of us. You just got to make the day 36 hours. <laughs> That's all. That's fun. How you been? I can make a couple calls. Yeah? yeah. All right. I'm good. Yeah? That, yeah. I need the 36-hour day, too. Yeah, we needed that break from last week. Yeah. We took last Thursday off. But yeah. um, we got a great show for you guys today. Today's, today's episode is titled Empire's Edge, the Armenian Saga in the Ottoman Times. And our guest will be historian Armen Manukaloyan. But before we get to the show announcements, yes. as always. Yeah. So... If you guys on, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, you will see a little uh, fundraiser with Hike for Our Heroes, and uh, we've joined them for a new project. As you all know, when I was in Armenia, I got a chance to visit Lori, the Lori entire province. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to travel, and I fell in love with the beauty, the nature, the people. Um, now, in the heart of uh, Lori province lies this village by the name of Martz, uh, where it seems time has kind of stood still for like 15 years. Yeah. Uh, the fundamental human right to clean water remains a distant dream to these people. Um, it's a relentless struggle of survival. Each day is um, like a battle, basically, and the villagers confront the stark reality of life without base, a basic necessity, which is clean yeah. water. Yeah. Um, Hike for Our Heroes has embarked on a noble quest, one that promises to transform lives and rekindle hope. Their mission? To forge a new water infrastructure and the lifeline that will not only quench the thirst of Mots, but also breathe life into its fields and farms, which is the village's, basically, lifeline. Um, this is more than just a project. It's a crusade to uplift a community, to turn the tide of faith. With each drop of water that will flow through the new system, we have the power to ignite a revolution in agriculture, um, which is the cornerstone of Mart's economy. Your support can be the catalyst for the monumental change. By donating to Hike for Our Heroes, you're not just giving water, you're nurturing life, empowering a village, and writing a new chapter in the story of Martz. So, together, let's bring this vision to life. And uh, we ask you to donate. Um, this is a big project, and what we're doing on part of Medhelosner, we're, we're, we want to raise 10000 from our end, and they're going to have another fundraiser 
on their um, um, on their Instagram, which you guys should follow them, Hike for Our Heroes. So we want to, you know, uh, we have a lot of listeners, a lot of viewers. Um, you know, if each person donates $100, 100 people, we're there. We can do this yeah. really fast in a heartbeat. So please consider donating. Like I said, that you should see that donation option on YouTube where um, you can... You know, whatever it doesn't have to be hundred. Whatever you can, we appreciate it. But you know, uh, if it's a hundred, like I said, a hundred people were there. It can happen so fast. So, um, besides that, uh, I recently had the pleasure of meeting a wonderful human being uh, recently by the name of Ani uh, Papidian. Uh, sometimes people come into your life with the most unexpected ways and you get to learn from them what it is to give back to our community. Um, she's an amazing people, uh, person and uh, Ani's actually a distinguished alumni of AGBU Alex Manukian in Montreal, Canada. Mm -hmm. So um, all our Canadian uh, listeners and followers up there. Um, yeah, we have quite a bit yeah. of people up in Toronto area in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. So where uh, this is where she completed her education. Ani then relocated to the United States where she pursued higher education, obtaining a bachelor's degree in business administration and followed by a Juris Doctorate from Southwestern University School of Law. Why am I telling you this? Um, for decades, uh, uh, she has... I mean, besides for decades having the experience uh, of being an attorney, Ani has dedicated herself to mentoring young students in our community, aiding them in their pursuit for law degrees. Since 2009, she has been influential coach for mock trial teams at the Armenian Sisters Academy and St. Francis High School. Mm -hmm. I got to spend some time with her and learn about what she's been doing. Uh, amazing human being. She's been involved with AGBU, Home and Man, so many programs, yeah. just giving back. And um, so beyond her legal career, Ani is actively contributed to the Armenian Sisters Academy as an advisory board member and a volunteer teacher where she leads an elective class for reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is this is what people do. They give back well, of uh, course. to the community. It's oh, so wow. important. Now, her commitment also extends to co-chairing the Armenian Sisters Academy Gala Dinner. And um, this gala is very important. It's going to be on February 10th, 2024 at the uh, Galenox Anush Banquet Hall. Now, um, this a lot of people actually don't know about Armenian Sisters Academy. It's, it's, it's in Montrose. It's an yeah. Armenian school. And I know from my experience, a lot of a lot of families who have kids, uh, you know, during COVID, post COVID, a lot of them wanted to that change. They wanted to take their kids to uh, Armenian private Armenian schools, private and schools, yeah. there was this big influx. And even now, there's a waiting list, all of them. Um, so, but this school is from uh, from uh, pre K to to eighth grade, mm -hmm. uh, and it's in Montrose. And a lot of people might not know about this school. That's that's you yeah, know, I've heard about it. Yeah, so plenty of times. Yeah, so uh, th so this event is not just a celebration, but a crucial fundraiser to support the school. Um, this institution holds a special place in our community, offering uh, a nurturing, nurturing environment for children to learn and grow, rooted in the Armenian traditions and Christian faith. We encourage all of you um to who are in the local area let me put up the flyer real quick this is the flyer 
And um, what you guys can do, if you're interested, we really encourage you guys to join. This is going to be a great gala. Um, you guys can visit uh, asamontrose.com for more details, or you can call 818-512-3948. That's on the screen right there. Uh, we want to have uh, our community there to support this this great gala, support the school. And one of the most important things, the fundraiser also, besides helping the school, what it does is there's a lot of families who are you know low income that they help for their kids to be able to go to the school so it's very important it's a great event ani is an amazing human being um and if you guys come across her you will if you talk to her she's just a beautiful soul you will learn so much from her um so please 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 if you guys are local you're available february 10th uh join this gala go and support very very important uh let's see what else um i think that's pretty much it, it covers as far it. as uh, announcements mm-hmm. um but yeah so today's guest uh we were introduced to our men f- uh, with our prior guest yes. michael lee gavlik uh and we got to talk and uh since the last episode was about uh Talerian and and the whole series and his past uh, we were like, you know, this is gonna be great having uh, Armin on because another very yeah, vital it, part. It, it of kind the of flows process. with it, yeah. So Armin is, has a uh, is a doctoral candidate at Georgetown University, specializing in the in study of history. His academic pursuits are centered around Ottoman Armenian politics and society during the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. His scholarly contributions, contributions, which include articles in various journals and chapters in collective volumes, reflect his expertise in this field. Currently, he is engaged in the preparation for the English language edition of Solomon Talerian's memoir for publication. He's doing some great work. So everybody, welcome Armin. Hi Armin, how are you? Hi Armin. Hi, Vic. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Good, good. good. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. I know it's late. You're joining us all the way from Georgetown. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to be here. We're going to keep you up a little bit late today, so yeah. uh, we appreciate appreciate the fact that you decided to do this. Um, first, when we, uh, you know, obviously I give a little about you, but can you, uh, so our audience can get to know who Armin is, can you give us short uh, background story about where you were born, where you grew up, and how you kind of fell in love with history and wanted to pursue it because it's not something everybody wants to do. You know, typically it's either a lawyer or a doctor. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, so I was born in Soviet Armenia when that was still around, and uh, our family moved to the United States right around the, the time of the collapse. And when I was younger, I don't think I really demonstrated too much interest in the subject of history, not as much as maybe some other subjects. I guess I really liked World War II, and maybe that was partly thanks to playing video games and things like that. But insofar <laughs> as Armenian history uh, was concerned, it was like very much a um, kind of just like this blank uh, area, which I didn't know much about, except for like what you might have learned, you know, through watching like a, a holiday special or you know like or just like watching like some sort of documentary on like the local armenian channels in los angeles um uh, then um once i started 
uh, I was just about to start college. I think like that was the time when I became a little bit more, I started demonstrating a little bit more interest in uh, history. I can't really say where it may have begun. I think in my last year of high school, my dad got me a copy of the biography of Monte Melconian. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just so uh, taken away by like just uh, his life story. And for people who don't know, he was an Armenian who was born in California. And in the 1960s and 1970s, he decides to you know, leave his studies and fight for all these organizations. And, you know, these are militant organizations in places like in Lebanon and uh, all these hotspots in the Middle East. And ultimately, he goes to Armenia and uh, in the 1990s is killed during the first Nagorno-Karabakh war. So all that, you know, was kind of just like struck me as very fascinating that somebody could leave his life and um, do something like that. And I thought, okay, maybe I should be studying or maybe, you know, this is like my entry point for um, reading more about history. And so, you know, beginning from uh, my time as a you know college student to, uh, you know, present day, like that's uh, my interest has just like been fixated um, fully on it. And it's become much more um, fully developed. So even though my PhD is on Ottoman history and Ottoman Armenian history, like I really enjoy reading about Russian Soviet history, um, history on Africa and, uh, you know, Latin America, just to kind of make me as, as well-rounded on, you know, give me like a well-rounded education on the subject as, as anything else. Wow. Wow. And here you are. It's the, yeah. the Notes version of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and here yeah. you are. Look at where you ended up with. Well, we got some questions for you. Uh, again, today we're going to talk uh, talk about the the Armenians uh, during the Ottoman Empire and and how their lives were, what their experience was yeah. from uh, you know it, from every aspect. But uh, before we start the questions, I want to sure. thank everybody who's joining us live on YouTube, Facebook, and X. Uh, people, feel free to comment in the chat. A uh, lot of love for our men. Uh, looks like you got a lot of fans joining us. Um, and uh, I, I want to, as we're doing, th- as we're going through the show, feel free to ask questions, and uh, we'll circle back and uh, bring these questions on the screen for our men. And uh, I also kind of want to try to do a little roll call today. I, if if you guys can type where you're from, I, I know you know later on we get a lot more views. Yeah. But even if you're watch, if you end up watching this later. Just comment, type in. We want to know where everybody's from. I know we see the demographics like 73 countries, but it's always good to see where people are actually, you know, the, you see their name, where it's they're from, I, when they're hanging idea, out. So, so yeah, just go I ahead like and it. type where you're from. Let's do a little roll call. Um, all right, so let's go. Let's start. So, Armin, um, you know, I've always been fascinated with what, I mean, I'm, I mean, of course, we're fascinated by history, right? And besides the war stories, if there's one thing Vic and I both have kind of learned is really need to understand where all this stuff started from. There's always a spawn. There's socioeconomic strife or whatever the case is, internal strife, every, you know, all-encompassing. Um, what We've had guests in the past who have talked about this yeah. briefly, though, not, not as in-depth. Um, and even I'm curious myself, and so hence why this is the first question, I guess, is... Can you shed some light on the socioeconomic status of Armenians during that time in the 
mid 19th century, early to mid 19th century, leading up to everything during the Ottoman Empire, pretty much. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, I mean, the time period that you're asking about is a very momentous period in Ottoman history. Uh, by that point, the empire had been around for close to um, five and a half, maybe yeah, about five and a half centuries. And so there was a certain time when ruling a large multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire made a lot of sense to, to people at the time. And there was... Uh, historians like to talk about the managing of difference. So even though you're the sovereign ruler of an empire like the like the Ottomans is that of the Sultan, he and maybe a good majority of his subjects are happen to be Muslim. There's also the uh, rights and privileges, and so far as you can have like a right in living as, as a subject of a of a monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, also have to be um, taken care of and to be addressed. Because a lot of times these people are forming the big part of your tax base when you're collecting taxes. So you have to offer them, you know, religious, uh, certain religious freedoms, certain sorts of uh, sort of privileges that will basically allow everyone to live happily altogether. And of course, all of this has to be placed in its own context. And we have to understand like what was understood as harmony, you know, 200, 300, 400 years ago is probably not the same yeah. Um, yeah. thing that all of us would agree upon now. But there came a point where the Ottoman system was perceived by its leaders to have been breaking down by the late 18th century. Partly that was because uh, the European powers like Russia and um, beginning with like the U- Britain and France were asserting their own interests in parts of like the Middle East or Russia on its border with the Caucasus or um, the Crimea when it took when it took over that region in the 18th century. Um, it was also partly because that there were competing centers for power in different parts of the empire. So it was no longer the Sultan's writ, which uh, basically got to decide on what you know, how to raise armies, how to uh, raise taxes, but small, uh, smaller groups of, um, you can call them like nobles or also known as like tax farmers who uh, can essentially prevent um, the empire's orders from Constantinople from being carried out in their particular region. So by the mid 19th century, it was decided that if we are going to address all these issues, then we have to uh, begin to centralize the government. So in the mid-19th century, the Ottoman Empire begins this program called the Tanzimat, or the reorganization, which little by little allows at least like some semblance of offering some semblance of like civil rights to Ottoman subjects. Um, I think it's maybe, um, it may not necessarily be a one-to-one uh, ratio of seeing the exact same things like that European citizens were being offered at the time. Um, like in, even though like well, big chunks of Europe were also under the control of empires, but at the very least there was a sort of idea that whether you're a Muslim or you're a Christian or a Jew, um, it shouldn't necessarily have to um, prevent you from occupying a position in government, for mm-hmm. example, which may, have been, um, which may have not been possible before then. Um, so there was this idea that at least like based on merit, you should be able to advance to these positions. So it was a good idea in theory, but how it was implemented in practice is, of course, like a different story. But insofar as the case of the Armenians are concerned, when that 
opportunity was offered to them, they embraced it wholeheartedly. And for a good 25 years, like basically until the 1870s, um, I think there was a lot of hope in the Armenians that through these sorts of reforms, we can centralize power, we can eliminate corruption in different institutions, um, like in the Armenian church, uh, where, again, you have like also small little competing uh, centers for power, which the authorities in Constantinople were, were not very happy with. And so some Armenians thought we can partner with the Ottoman government so that we can uh, begin our own set of reforms uh, at the same time uh, in a, a parallel fashion. So they were, so from the sound of it, they were very cooperative with things. I mean, they were, they were working with a lot of the local folks and different, I mean, different creeds or whatever yeah, the case yeah. is, right? It wasn't some sort of, um, like they segregated themselves from the sound of it. I mean, anyone that we've talked to has kind of said the same thing. They were always yeah. very participant. There was a huge high yeah. participation in everything that was going on. Yeah. Well, know? I mean, they saw themselves as part of the empire. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I mean, of course you had no you're choice. talking about hundreds and hundreds of, yeah. or thousands of years of, of Armenian existence in that area. So, uh, yeah. naturally, uh, even if you're under a different empire rule, I mean, when they were under the Byzantine sure. rule, same thing. they, they were involved. They were, they had, but you know, maharars, they had so many, but you know how same sometimes, concept. sometimes certain groups of people can, and, and I'm, and I'm not trying to paint a negative thing yeah. to this, but can act as a thorn in the side of said empire or said control mechanism. Yeah, right. True. True. You know, especially so. nowadays. Well, yeah. 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 So, um, now in your research, uh, obviously, you know, you, you, you're, you've learned so much about how all this, uh, uh the, especially the economic role, let's say, and the con contributions of Armenians. How do you, how do you how do you see them evolved in the Ottoman Empire during this period? Are, are there any specific examples you can share with us of you know how how they were? Because we know later on it became a problem. Yeah. So can you shed some light on that from like the early nineteenth uh, century going into the twentieth century? No spoiler alert, huh? Yeah. This is just on the the economics, uh, yeah, side like of the, the economic side of role of Armenians and and their contributions to the empire. Yeah, I mean, to kind of I think understand this uh, history, it's best to look at again what was going on in the empire more broadly. Just again, um, this is like how historians like to frame it as the empire in beginning the late 18th and early 19th century is integrated into what's known as like the world system, which basically means that you now become interconnected through trade in a way which may have not necessarily been as sophisticated, not as instantaneous in um, previous centuries that, you know, uh, different forms of trade did exist, you know, going back at least in the region more than a, a millennium. But now it became uh, such that um, sometimes certain countries' entire dependencies just became, or in, entire countries' economies just became dependent on certain crops. Um, so uh, to see the, the economic reforms essentially do sort of parallel the, the same efforts uh, in um, political liberalization that I was talking about earlier in under the Tanzimat. And, you know, to be honest, like I have not studied um, the economics uh, factor too carefully, but it is this kind of question which uh, recurs where you do see why is it that there's a sort of prominence uh, among Armenians in 
the field of economics beginning in the light uh, mid uh, 19th century and into the 20th. You have a, a very similar parallel, I think, with um, Jews in places like in Germany mm-hmm. uh, around the same time. And some historians may try to explain that away through um, like cultural reasons. So in the case of Jews, a lot of them were shunted into um, roles where, for example, like money lending, which would have been considered uh, by ch- the church authorities uh, in Europe as something which was almost uh, beneath them. Or the yeah, u- usury. Yeah, okay. yeah, u- uh, usury. So it's not yeah. necessarily something which was considered to be to a uh, prestigious uh, um, uh, position. And yet, once like banks start uh, coming to be established, once you have like these larger financial institutions being established in uh, different parts of the world, it almost seems as if like being in that sort of position kind of lends you to yes. uh, expand on uh, the basis of scale uh, quite easily. And Armenians, you know, there was quite a bit of money lenders in uh, among Armenians in um, Constantinople as well. And I can't help but think that, on the one hand, uh, it is that sort of role that you kind of slip into, but it also helps that if you are going and getting an education in Europe and learning several European languages, that's going to maybe help you to start a business with uh, certain foreign companies, for example, or to enter into contracts with them on a basis that you already know how things are perhaps done elsewhere. So that immediately gives you an end. And so once you finally return to the empire, then you can immediately try to expand your businesses in that sense. So again, it's a real good question. I, I feel like um, we as historians have not studied it in, in uh, enough detail as all of us would like, but it's not, I think, too big of a, a grasp to think of it as um, you know, a too big giant leap to go from smaller scale like money lending um, ventures to much larger enterprises like banks and um, you know, if you can develop like contacts with the authorities of or like the leaders of certain countries mm-hmm. like the Russian Tsar or the Ottoman Sultan or like in in Germany with the German Kaisers as like Jews do over there too, then you can kind of exploit those contacts to acquire greater privileges. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I mean, from previous guests that we've had, we've had uh, Umid Kurt. Umid Kurt. He was, he, uh, he was even uh, 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 yeah. Professor um, Herine. Yes. Powell, yeah. you know her book uh she she they they all talk about how obviously we know this but it, you know it, like you said i don't think there's been enough research to to maybe shed more light but you know banking um any type of the gold medical. industry medical yeah. even even law you mm-hmm. know all these prominent they had, type of they had positions in city councils or yeah or leaders whatever. they were always yeah. thriving yeah. to be in that part and and you see that nowadays even in the diaspora you know, you oh, yeah, see well, that I mean, here, here in L.A. Yeah, L.A., yeah. New York, even in Canada, you know, uh, it's just it's something in our nature to thrive, to be in the leadership sure. role. Yeah. Um, but a good question is um, uh, you, there, apparently there's a story about the Bank of Ottoman. Yeah, so the um, what I think I think that's Michael. Yeah, uh, so I Michael. Think Michael's throwing questions. Yeah, is, uh, it is Michael. The Ottoman Bank, or uh, in French, of course, it would be Bank Ottoman. So, 
um, very quickly and hopefully like this, uh, I can place it in the same context of the, um, the question that you guys asked me, like the bank, uh, Ottoman bank is, despite its name, actually a French and British owned institution, which is founded in the 1880s. Once the Ottoman Empire under the Sultan Abdul Hamid II defaults on its loans, the Europeans decide that in order to help pay off its debts, they have to take almost direct control over the country's finances. So I forget the exact statistic, but I think close to 80% or maybe, no, it's probably less than that, but I think it was maybe close to like 40 or 50% of yeah. the revenues that the Almond yeah. Bank was collecting on behalf of like the, all the citizens of the, the Ottoman Empire was going just to debt servicing. So a massive chunk of it was um, being directed uh, in that, um, you know, directed toward that purpose. And again, again, without trying to go too off topic, like it's uh, becomes a very famous because in the late 1890s, Armenians seized the bank because of its prominence, because of its visibility in this um, very nice neighborhood in, in Istanbul that uh, they tried to use its capture as a way of like drawing attention to the plight of Armenians who are being massacred by Abdul Hamid. I've heard of this story. Time. I've heard of this story. Oh, so yeah. Uh, See, these are these are the type of things that are really really fascinating because you can really relate to what's going on today. Yeah. Well, that that um, system multiple, is the that system yeah. is the oldest trick in the book. Yeah. Which is, well, of course. You know, you know, we see that happening with other countries well, now uh, to to seize, uh, you know, uh, especially in the financial. Yep aspect of yeah. it um yeah it's 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 interesting but maybe we'll do one episode just about that bank and just go yeah, really a, into the details very it's a very topic. interesting story yeah. of how they seized it and every it went on for a few uh, i don't know how many days it was but uh maybe i don't know if again i don't know the full story but uh, i know it's a very interesting story yeah yeah it's worth diving into yeah. when we get to that point yeah the timeline yeah um, okay, so we've covered somewhat, you know, a little glimpse of socioeconomic, also economic and whatnot. Um, how about on the religious side of things um, with like the Armenian communities? What was what was the situation like? I mean, you know, considering the Ottoman Empire is vastly Muslim, right? And then you also mentioned that there, there were Jews living amongst them you know, Christians living amongst them and I'm sure whatever else. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, what was their religious identity? Like what was it, how was that influenced on a daily? Well, religion, uh, for sure. Um, even well into the, I mean, the mid 19th century, well into the, the early 20th century as well, structured the lives of, uh, of many people in the, the empire um, when you had an institution like the Armenian Church, which had its tradition, you know, the Armenian apostolic tradition at that time but went back almost two millennia. So it could draw on uh, a whole set of um, cultural reference points like holidays, like its saints and martyrs, mm -hmm. like its uh, literature and, uh, you know, public holidays, which were very interestingly enough celebrated uh, sometimes with Muslims as well. It depended on which part of the empire you were talking about, but it wasn't very unusual to have Christians, Muslims, and even Jews like taking part in each other's religious holidays. And that was because of the nature of the Ottoman Empire too, which 
was founded at least nominally as a uh, empire which is governed by Islamic laws. And so uh, according to that framing, um, Christians and Jews are considered protected people. So they're afforded their, so are supposed to be afforded their, their, relig- their religious rights. And, you know, um, well into the, the 19th century, I don't think people had any objections to uh, seeing the church as their representative. I mean, whether you were living in Istanbul or if you were living in like a, a small town or village in uh, the eastern provinces where most of the Armenians mm-hmm. uh, resided, um, you know, the village priest was somebody who was considered like the a local figure of authority. And um, you would attend church uh, on Sunday, if not on other days as well. And again, that helped kind of form this sort of cohesiveness to a community. But the Armenian church also, uh, very interestingly enough, we've come to understand in the mid-19th century, accepts its role as a partner to the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, um, who uh, very famously among Armenians, we know as the person who gives the speech about the Iron Ladle, 20 years earlier, 10, 20 years before that speech in 1878, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in 1878, it might have been in 1881, but, uh, uh, you know, is sent to Van province to help uh, Armenian church root out corruption among uh, like the local prelacies to root out corrupt uh, priests in order to offer the, the local population a much clearer line of contact with uh, the capital so that any petitions or any questions that they uh, that people have can immediately be addressed and Issues that they are having can also be immediate, find an immediate remedy. So uh, it's very interesting to kind of see the the church uh, evolving and also settling into this new role as the as the time goes by. And in the years immediately uh, before the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, I think you also see the Ar- Armenian Church trying to um, reconcile itself in in life once this empire is now uh, governed by a parliament and a constitution. Well, how do you do that when you also have like political parties who are vying for uh, electoral power? And um, if they want to use a church, is that considered a, a proper venue for, um, you know, yeah, electioneering? Yeah. And, and there's, uh, in my research, I've come across a lot of t- uh, letters and telegrams from the Armenian church in Echmeatin, which is telling its subordinate Constantinople, we can't allow this to happen because then it's overly politicizing our roles mm-hmm. and institutions. It's very fascinating just to see these um, different ways that people um, see religion as a way of bettering their community. And um, another example you can also give is how even though um, the Armenian church may have like its own prelacies in like the Russian empire in, uh, oftentimes you have Armenians collecting donations in the Armenian church for causes such as, um, um, like, uh, donations for Armenian victims of the massacres, or if there's famine that they, they also collect quite a bit of, of money for it. And again, the, uh, institutions like the church were perhaps the best conduits to, um, allow you to to do that fascinating yeah. it really is that like 
I mean, again, I'm, I mean, I know I'm drawing parallels to the modern day, but you see some of the tactics used, especially during election cycles, yeah. whether state or federal, you know, you see a lot of the same type of things being used. It's just fascinating to hear about that in yeah. that time period. I mean, also faith, you know, the, the, the faith, the Christianity, you know, people, especially back then more, I think, looked at church as like that that hub the safe well, space I mean, it was above you know? and beyond yeah, anything yeah. else so i think drawn to them for to be able to do these type of uh fundraisings or what whatnot you know i think was a, a no-brainer yeah. for them right it was like yeah. okay but th- this is this is our spiritual leaders mm-hmm. this is what these it's all about humanity so kind of go through them um now you know being Armenian, one of the things that I personally love, and I know most Armenians love, is our traditions. We have some great traditions, yeah. uh, values in our families, the way we raise our kids. And these are things that have been passed down through centuries, you know. But are, were there any significant cultural practices or traditions unique to the uh, Armenian communities during this era of the uh, ottoman uh, uh, empire that you might have come across during your research that you know that people might not know about something that we you know it's not maybe practiced anymore it's not really it's kind of died out is there anything unique traditions just for the ottoman armenians um i mean if I can just think of maybe one example off the top of my head um i mean i mentioned a little bit earlier about like this sort of public quality to uh, religion. So I mentioned that during celebrations for um, like you were in Jerusalem, again, it wasn't out of the ordinary for uh, Muslims to um, go to like Easter or to congratulate um, their Christian neighbors mm-hmm. uh, for Easter. And uh, I remember seeing an example in Yerzinkar, uh, Erzincan, in what's now like central Turkey, uh, that there was a um, the remnants, or not the, the remnants, but the, there was the uh, there was the fragments of certain Armenian saints which were kept in a reliquary, or the relics of the relics yeah. sword that I was trying to remember that was held inside a reliquary in an Armenian church. And very interestingly enough, um, it wasn't just Armenians who would go next to these relics to. Um, oh be healed from their powers because there was a sort of spiritual uh and supernatural significance that was attached to the relics of holy men but it was also muslim women who would for example go inside the armenian church and they would also sit by it thinking that if they were suffering from a certain ailment or disease that they would also be um cured by it because it has these sort of special healing powers. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is uh, very interesting and so very much like a part of the, the world where um, I don't want to say like necessarily secularization was the one thing which changed everybody's minds, but it was this thing which had been handed down for generations and you can go back into Christian tradition from, you know, a thousand years ago where you see that uh, appear much more prominently, especially when it comes to like relics and things like that. But um, like just in terms of like a, a cultural tradition, I mean, I think that's like one which springs to mind immediately. Uh, of course, there was like other things which have um, like the feast days that the Armenian church has where you celebrate um, 
like Vartavar, which is like yeah. the transfiguration mm-hmm. of, of Christ. But then, uh, you know, like Vartavar predates, you know, yeah. also uh, yeah. Christianity. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. My question was more like, is there certain something like they did like let's say a practice or like even a feast type of it was something that after the genocide kind of like uh it 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 uh, almost faded away or got lost because of of the 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 spread of armenians through the diaspora obviously we've kept most of our traditions yeah. uh you know the prominent one but um uh, something like that you know the ottomans it, it, you try to picture and imagine like you know uh, uh armenians living during that era and you you try to when you close your eyes you're like you want to hear the music that, yeah. that was being played that the the sounds of the streets the the dialect that they were speaking you know so that that's where my question was for was there anything unique uh, uh as far as the type of traditions practice they, that you might have come across your research and if you haven't that's fine i just thought i ask you <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think I've I've looked too carefully at that in the course of my research, but I would say that maybe, and again, this might be simplifying things. I think there was, you know, a certain sort of simplicity to the way that people understood things until the modern world kind of caught up with the Ottoman Empire. Once you had, like, the building of railroads and um, development of technology, like telegraph and uh faster forms of communication and also like new ideas which were appearing in the late 19th century new ideas on race on and nation and belonging uh i think it sort of uh made things a lot more complicated uh, because things then had to uh had to conform to a certain way that uh political or um national leaders might want to see them uh, play out. Now, it's a very, again, like a very condensed way of kind of putting that. But um, I, I'm always struck. I think like just like how much simpler that, uh, like, almost as if like people were a little bit more naive about like the world, uh, the the world of things until like uh, until they really did change. Yeah. Yeah. Um. What about what about the family structure? Um. You know, what was it like for? families to hold on to their traditions or what was their structures like were they impacted by anything um that for, to your knowledge um you know during or with other ethnic groups was there influences or anything of the sort that may or may not have altered let's say the armenian family structure yeah i mean i think uh in the more rural provinces like it was still very much like a, a patriarchal society yeah. so a lot of regimentation based on uh, your gender and your role so women usually were the ones who were uh in charge of the household whereas the men were the ones who were um either you know tilling the um the farmland or you know managing a small business or a store or something like that um one of my chapters looks at um, the love life of Daniel Varujan and his wife, and you kind mm-hmm. of see like this very vivid example of how he's trying to buck those trends by the early 20th century. Varujan um, goes and receives an education in Belgium and lives there for a couple years and comes back with a university education and um, ultimately falls in love with one of his students. Uh, and it's very interesting to kind of see like the dynamic play out between him and his wife over the next uh, few months, because his wife, before she was even born, was promised to uh, the son of a 
you know, another family. Yeah. And they are living in a town called Sivas, which is also now in central Turkey. And um, his wife, whose name is Araksi, uh, her parents are uh, absolutely dead set against the fact that um, their daughter wants to uh, marry Varujan. And they concoct these different idea um um like plots like well varujan and his wife first they think like maybe we should elope because this will be a lot easier than if we were to stay here um his uh his future wife's family tries to introduce like a different suitor um anything to just kind of like throw a, a wrench into their into their words yeah. and you kind of yeah and it's very interesting that the entire city of sivas or like the, all the armenians of sivas kind of come out on one side or the other. And it's very interesting because you see the social dynamics at play. Uh, according to like some of the sources I've read, the families which have been much more well-established who are like considered like the big land-owning uh, elites and classes and um, business owners are very much on the side of Araxi's parents. Um, so they are the traditional elite and they don't want things to be uh ruffled too much and the whole idea of i think like marrying somebody you love was very foreign i think uh at that time and not just among armenians but i think in the ottoman empire more generally uh and then interestingly enough the uh subset uh of society which comes out in support of varjan are like the new uh cultural elites like people who have received education people who are educators or lawyers or, or doctors like the professional class that's coming into uh, into uh, into shape at that mm -hmm. time, and ultimately, um, you know, Baroxi's parents relent and they do get married. But you can see how, like, just the very idea that they would kind of approach uh, the subject of like forming a, a relationship based on just like mutual feelings was very uh, was very new at the time. And Araxi herself, I think she comes under her husband's influence in a good way, where she asserts herself as like a an individual who has her own separate thoughts, has like something to say about it, and really gets into these heated arguments with her parents because of how disdainful she is for, for their old ways. And so a lot of this also kind of, I think, speaks to like the education which Varujan received in Europe, which informs his way of approaching like um his relationship with a woman in this way so uh that's like one real interesting example i think uh we can we can conceive of just like yeah yeah uh, family or gender relations at the time well i mean the 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 fascinating part about like you said araxia was was promised before she was born to somebody else yeah. i mean talk, talk about old traditions yeah. right old ways right out of like mouth, that's yeah. oh my god i can't even yeah. imagine that that's it's like how <laughs> like uh but we've that's talked it. about some weird things yeah in previous yeah. episodes um before we move on to the next question uh uh i want to again thank everybody who's joining us live on youtube uh facebook and x uh, we are joined by with historian Armen Manukaloyan. We're talking about the Armenians uh, during the uh, um, Ottoman Empire. Uh, but there's a question. David yeah. has a good question. You want to read that? Uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty it interesting. Says, um, I'd love to hear Armen's thoughts and knowledge regarding the relationship and interactions between the different Ottoman Armenians in cities slash villages. Hmm. The the 
uh, relations between Armenians in different towns and, and yeah. villages. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe I know you, maybe if I'm correct, earlier on he mentioned how in like different provinces, how depending they communicated on, and, yeah, and yeah, depending yeah. on what part of the empire, right? Where there was maybe a more concentration yeah. of Armenians. Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting question. I wonder if I've ever really even thought about yeah. it along those lines. I think, uh, again, after 1915, after the genocide, I think we almost kind of took into uh, took it for granted that Armenians may have seemed to have uh, thought and spoke alike uh, before, you know, the war and before the genocide just completely upended things. Whereas I wonder if, you know, there may have been a certain sort of uh, pride in your local town or your local region because of certain traditions. I think yeah. you can kind of imagine like somebody from uh, from Sasun, for example, where it's like this, or from Zaytun, where it's like these martial traditions where they, which they draw their uh, traditions from, like which go back several centuries by yeah. by the 19th century, and they can kind of take pride in something like that, and maybe uh, you know, like assert themselves as well. We're a little bit more. Uh, we have this martial tradition, which we uh, can definitely place us on a level uh, above like other Armenians. Whereas maybe Armenians, in, uh, especially like in Constantinople or in Smyrna, which are these massive urban centers, I think you would have like this sort of a, a different attitude. Like where the now, elite attitude, right? Yeah, uh-huh. we're university educated or we are a professional class or we are a part of that a uh, very wealthy uh, class of elites so that, you know, it's only thanks to our generosity that maybe some of the provinces are even able to, you know, build their schools or to, yeah. um, you know, uh, essentially make a, a living. I mean, again, that may have been a, a huge exaggeration on their part too. But I think that's where uh, where you do see some sort of, uh, I think, like some, some level of uh, relations uh, between people from different areas, which go beyond the simple fact of like, let's say trade between regions, or maybe you um, attending the, the church of a, you know, um, of a neighbor from like a, another village. I think it's uh, maybe best seen through like a, a class lens and how um, you have, for example, a lot of rural armies coming from rural provinces to work as porters and laborers in uh, Constantinople and how, you know, you read their the accounts, it, uh, a lot of them are just like boarded into small, you know, um, domiciles and where like maybe eight or 10 people just like live in one particular area. So it's like this very, very much like uh, secluded from like the, the other elites, I think, um, if you were to just like view it through that lens. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm very glad that David's here too. Him and I went on a study abroad trip to Armenia in 2007. So I'm glad that um, oh, he's here. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think especially during time of peace, if you can call a small era during that yeah. time, you know, you got the Sasuntis who are, you know, they have that pride of being those warriors. You know, mm-hmm. you got the Hamshitsis. You got you got so many different regions, and it's you know everybody had their own kind of like. Thing. I don't know what you want to go identity I guess and uh, um, maybe there was some parts where they looked down upon one another or sure. uh, and I don't know if it was more looked down upon it's more of that pride of I think course. right everybody had their pride maybe the the Armenians from Antop were different uh, but I think 
and and you see that even today, I think, with the regions of uh, within Armenia, you have the Sunik region, you have the uh, the northern province like Lodi or um, you know eastern, western. Well, yeah, like Yerevan. Their... Yerevan is like you said. Yerevan is like that that more of that elite, Rome. you know, yeah, Rome. Rah, uh, yeah. But you know, one thing we know that during crisis, all that stuff goes out oh, yeah, the window, and it's about unity. You know, uh, it doesn't matter what which part, and I think. Um, unfortunately, during uh, the genocide, uh, because of lack of communication, because of lack of technology, you know, the message didn't get sure, there. It wasn't going to get there on time until it was uh, it was late. And I think that was one of the big. And they and the Turks, if, at least from my in my opinion, they did a really good job trying to <clears throat> minimize for the word to get around uh, for the different regions. Well, I mean, again, it you know, had to be well thought out. Yeah. This yeah. wasn't just like they woke up in the morning and decided yeah. to do what they did. Um, you know, obviously nationalism played a uh, significant role uh, shaping the late uh, 19th and 20th century. Um, how did Armenian nationalism manifest during this period and what impact did it have overall with the, uh, uh, you know, with the, uh, relationship in the Ottoman Empire with with the Ottoman elites or government. That's a, a very good question. Um, I'm going to try to do my best to to answer it. Um, nationalism is also probably a word that may be easily misunderstood um, because it sounds. I mean, maybe uh, in first glance, like the, the definition itself is very simple um but there's different kind of strands of nationalism there is this sort of civic nationalism which i think may be better put as like patriotism um which is a love mm -hmm. of homeland a love for a fatherland which is very much a kind of like a recent idea relatively speaking it's something which kind of uh, I mean, which kind of originates in the late 18th century with the french revolution of 1789 this whole idea that uh, or even, you know, here in the United States, the idea of like the 13 colonies um, mm -hmm. banding together, um, almost revolutionary to, you know, no pun intended, like somebody from Boston can relate to somebody in living in Virginia or in Charleston and decide to band together to form a, a much larger like territorial entity. Um, so um, it was very much a novel idea once these ideas, uh, uh, once they started to make inroads in the Ottoman Empire itself, because as I mentioned a little bit earlier, whereas previously religion was maybe the um, key, what we would call like national marker to one's identity at the time, now nationalists who were usually intellectuals, but you know, it's not exclusively made up of them try to propose like new definitions and these definitions were always contested they were almost never settled arguably they still are not settled and regardless of the fact if you're looking at armenian nationalism greek nationalism even turkish nationalism all those sorts have like similar uh ways of thinking but not everybody uh can agree on the definition so um Beginning in the 19th century, you have uh, once like Armenian nationalism appears, it's in the guise of maybe a everybody speaking a particular language. So even that question itself was like very much contentious in the mid 19th century. There are Armenians who one subset of Armenians who were saying that well we should be speaking 
classical Armenian, Pirapaj. Uh, and there was another subset of Armenians who were saying, well, it's too challenging for our uh, greater part of our population. So uh, we should be speaking the vernacular form of our language. Well, then, you know, somebody else would even say, well, should we be speaking the Constantinople dialect? Um, you know, also, that's just like the question, that's just like how even a question of language can become so complicated. But then ultimately, religion can um, play a, a huge role. And one of the most interesting examples I've come across is uh, the case of these Armenians who live in these very scattered parts of the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. They're known in Armenian as the High Horom, which translates into Armenian Chalcedonians. So these are Armenians who belong to the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, which is, of course, is on a theologically different doctrinal level uh, than the Armenian Church. And yet these Armenians continue to speak Armenian. They're the descendants of uh, Armenians who converted to Greek Orthodoxy during the Byzantine time, so more than a, yeah. a millennium earlier. And uh, these Armenians are seen uh, as potential members of like uh, the Arm greater, wider Armenian nation. So whereas up until the 20th century, until the Ottoman Empire's collapse, that is, uh, the Ottoman census was based on counting people by uh, the religion that they belonged to rather than by the language they spoke or how they self-identified. Uh, Armenians were saying, well, these people should be included within our nation. It's very interesting that you hear them say that because Greeks in the modern state of Greece, which is founded in 1832, uh, are also looking at these Armenians and are saying, well, no, they're Greeks. They just happen to be the descendants of uh, the ancient Greeks from 2000 years ago. So you kind of see this sort of contest over, over people taking place throughout the 19th century and uh, the early part of the 20th century. Very fascinatingly. Um, you can also go to the archives in Armenian in uh, Yerevan today. And you can look up church records, for example, which uh, show Muslim Kurds and Turks who, having lived in Armenian towns in villages for decades and worked there, petitioned the Armenian church and petitioned the, the Russian empire, because this part of Armenia was under Russian control at the time, to uh, convert to Armenian apostolicism, mm -hmm. to essentially leave their religion and be incorporated into the Armenian community that they've been living in. So it's very interesting how these, what we call like borders to national identity were very por very porous, very permeable. You can enter and you can go as you please. I mean, again, a little simplification, but there was that certain quality to it. And I think after World War I and after the genocide, suddenly I think that level of that ability to choose uh, to speak like... Um, you know, a certain language or to belong to a certain religion is circumscribed. So a big number of Armenians in places like in Bitlis and uh, thereabouts, for example, spoke Turkish, whereas like after the genocide, now Turkish becomes associated with the perpetrators of the yeah. Armenian genocide. Yeah. And it's, you know, shunned and it's uh, publicly shamed. So it's, or you are publicly shamed to be speaking. But again, it's very interesting to kind of see that sort of value attached to um, language, religion, and other things um, after after that event, rather than, you know, when empires were still very much um, the, the key way of organizing political uh, power in before World War One. Yeah, uh, the map changed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um... 
it's really interesting to see think about it too and again i'm, I'm constantly drawing parallels to today yeah right because i mean we live in such an area where or a country where you have so much so many different people from so many different places everybody's fine with whatever they what what creed yeah. what language whatever but now you're he's painting such a detailed picture of what it was like back then it's super and, and yeah, yeah it's, and it's, you're drawing it's very constantly similar. drawing yeah. parallels to it you know yeah it's like it's like this kind of almost the same thing but just a different, different more different modern part, different part, part of the world, world different, different, yeah, yeah it was pretty much the same thing but yeah, same kind of yeah. Mo- mindset. Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you, have you come across with, especially with what you just talked about, have you come across a lot of misconceptions, let's say with the Armenians and their way of life in that time period? Um, and if you have, um, what are, what are some of them? I'm curious about this too. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, the answer to your question is definitely yes. I think uh, once you study the history by looking at archival documents, archival documents are in the form of letters, of diaries, of petitions, which are sent to, you know, to and from different organizations or entities. It could be a petition from Armenians in a certain village to the mm-hmm. Sultan. It could be a, a petition to the Armenian Catholicos in Echmiatzin, for example. Uh, once you kind of like get to that sort of ground level of research, which to be honest, has not really been done until about 15, 20 years ago, in at least like in American academia. Armenians in Soviet Armenia actually did a pretty good job of mining material in the archives, but oftentimes the way that they would present it would be in a very sort of uh descriptive. Uh, dis- description or like an explan it will have like a, a very little explanatory or analytical uh, quality to it. Um, but I think one thing that I've come to discover just like in the course of my research, which is a way of kind of like dispelling a myth, is of course like Turkish his- uh, or the official Turkish his- uh, historical thesis. That, you know, years earlier, and I think even to the present, they always said that Armenians wanted independence, uh, and that's why they revolted during the First World War to get their own state. Whereas when I uh, have, uh, when I've been doing my own research, I've come to realize that the Armenians um, not only did not want their own separate state by 1913, 1914, uh, but that they were very happy with living in an empire, but they had like an extra caveat to it. As I've come to understand in my research, I think the way that they would have explained it is that why should we settle for, you know, a small state, uh, you know, located in this economically depressed region of what's now the eastern part of Turkey when we can have our own empire. So the idea is that uh, having, you know, become the most, having become prosperous, but also having become the most educated and, uh leading uh having become having acquired like the sort of education the uh, established contacts with like foreign countries we should also be able to acquire like positions of power in government like you know prime ministry uh like the minister of finance like the ministry of uh you know all these important uh, portfolios in Ottoman Ottoman government because only then we'll be able to literally and figuratively uh, find a common tongue to speak with uh, 
you know, our European neighbors Mm -hmm. so that we'll be able to kind of hold off like further European intervention. But at the same time, we'll also be able to improve the empire's position vis-a-vis, you know, economics, uh, vis-a-vis our own internal development. So I think that's like the one thing which I've only really dawned on me about a year ago that I, but I was coming across that sort of rhetoric um, more and more in the sources that I was reading, like in diaries and in uh, documents where on the one hand, it's maybe this sort of frustration with uh, how little is accomplished under the, um, the, the ruling governments in the early 20th century and how, if only they had the ability to mm-hmm. uh, run things then things would be on a completely different level. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a very interesting point because again, through throughout every um uh, historical nar- narrative it's always that the, like you said the armenians were going to revolt there was also the russian yeah. side involved yeah but you know it's, like you said I, I mean it it makes sense because again drawing parallels to today if you're in the united states and let's say uh, you know you have this community of uh, armenians that are prospering and they have high yeah. positions in every type of you know, um, whatever you want to call it in politics, business, so forth. And and you see this empire that's thriving. Why would you want to, uh, you know, uh, separate yourself from that? Almost like become an island. And you got to well, start from zero. You got to start trade, your own police and this and that. Well, let's not forget this wasn't their fault. It wasn't like groups of people started to rise no, up. No, no, no. But uh, the point I was trying to make that now kind of tying that with the question I had about the ultra uh, nationalism, was there a, a certain group or, uh, you know, that kind of maybe wanted that and there was a, a strife between let's say these these more of the elite armenians who were like no we're doing great we're in this you know we're in high position and so forth uh is there any ties to 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 that nationalism versus uh, uh that misconception that we're talking about that they was you know they wanted to separate and and have their own state um, I think there may have been disagreements among members of the like the Armenian political elite and a bank, uh I guess you can call the I mean, there was this sort of disenchanted group of Armenians who, for one reason or another, became so frustrated with the um the pace of things in the Ottoman Empire that they were willing to kind of write it off. And, you know, you have those examples in different parts of the world, too. In Austria-Hungary, uh, which is an empire which is uh, host to different uh, ethnic groups, there are, for example, Czechs, uh, um, people who now form modern Czechoslovakia's population, who are very frustrated with the idea that they do not have as much rights as German speakers or Hungarian speakers in that empire. So in World War One. Uh, breaks out, they actively collaborate with the allied governments in order to help uh, obtain independence for a separate Czechoslovak state. So I wouldn't surprise me too much to hear that sort of like voices in the wilderness in the Armenian setting. There's a lot of Armenians who um, leave the Ottoman Empire for Russia, maybe some for the United States just before the war breaks out. And um, some of them may be expressing the view that, you know, the day, the age of empires is uh, ultimately coming to an end. It's giving way to this idea of a nation state, and the nation state is so much more exclusive in terms of 
uh, its ownership. It's mainly based on the fact that there's like a like a ruling ethnic group, as its, its name implies. Uh, but I think those voices, at least uh, in the Armenian case, are kind of in the minority. I think, and just because. Again, the whole idea of like empire is so much more widely accepted than the idea of like separate nation states, even though you have more of those, you know, appearing like every decade or so, um, especially like in the Balkans, you have like first Greece and then Serbia and then Romania and then Bulgaria, which are former subjects of the Ottoman Empire, but throughout the 19th century ultimately gained their independence. Uh, but um you know, in places like in Central and Eastern Europe or like in the greater part of Russia, again, it seems like empire is still the way to to run things. But I think uh, for, like, you, again, you can read, for example, the diary of Krikor Zokrov, who is an Armenian member of parliament uh, in October, November 1914, when the Ottoman Empire finally enters the war. And you can see that he is mourning the death of an empire, as he himself says. And he says, like, my heart grieves for what... Uh, you know, lies in store for the fate of these people. And on the one sense, it's like this recognition that this war is going to devastate the people because it's on a scale which nobody's ever seen before. But it's also very tragic because uh, Zohrab himself is um, murdered on the orders of his very close friend, um, who's the equivalent of the prime minister of the empire at the time, Talat Pasha. Yeah. Well, it's not the prime minister, he's the interior minister, but um, you can see how uh, those hopes are just like so cruelly dashed uh, during the war. The people yeah. like the greatest, as Zohar himself asks, like where, where are the, you know, the empire's true believers? Because he doesn't consider Talat or Enver Pasha, like the members of the CUP who are in charge of government at the time as, you know, the true believers of an empire. Because if they were to uh, maintain the empire, according to his logic, they wouldn't be throwing you know, taking this massive gamble by going into a war when the empire is not ready for it. And again, it's a very interesting way that uh, he and others were kind of conceiving it at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, David brings up a good question, and I'll throw that, but Mike has to uh, unfortunately go. He's going to draw his second yellow card and leave yeah. early I've, unfortunately I've but we're going to continue the last couple thursday nights yeah so, so but um, we'll continue so mike you can exit ladies and, and gentlemen uh, <laughs> we'll continue Pleasure our conversation to you. i'm sure i'll talk to you again soon all right buddy have a good game <laughs> get those goals um all right so as mike leaves uh we're going to continue with our conversation but um david had a had a good a uh, it's more of a thought, you know, he, he wanted to know um, your thoughts uh, about the rise of the CUP since we kind of mentioned, touched up on Talat Pasha and the Ottoman Empire and the Armenians' reactions during this initial stage of the revolution. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah. Um, so those of you guys who don't know who or what the, the CUP is, it's an underground organization that's founded in the the late 1880s and 1889, if I'm not mistaken. And they form an oppositional group to the Sultan of the empire at the time, Abdul Hamid II. So if you look at the, the social background and origins of the members who formed the CUP, they come typically from two different sorts of institutes, so, uh, two different institutions from the empire. One is from the, the medical faculty and from um, Istanbul's medical college, and the other come from the the army. Uh, but the vast majority of them are low-ranking 
officers. So these are people who have received a uh, an education, a certain higher education, and uh, have come to realize that the empire is in dire straits, even in the 1880s and the 1890s, that it's hemorrhaging territories, that it's being mismanaged, it's run by a despotic uh, autocratic ruler. And for about 10, 15 years, this organization kind of remains in this sort of embryonic stage. It forms cells in different parts of the empire, but where it really develops a, um, uh, a foothold is in the city of Salonika or now Thessaloniki in Greece, um, but at the time was part of the empire. And in 1908, uh, in July 1908, there's this realization that the uh, Sultan is going to move on these conspirators. So for about 10, 15 years, they haven't been able to weaken the power of the Sultan until uh, this, uh, until this moment. And so they realize they're going to march onto uh, Constantinople, which is what they do. They, uh, the army units begin uh, advancing, and at the side of it, Abdul Hamid immediately capitulates and restores a constitution and a parliament that the empire had uh, established uh, in the 1870s. And the members of the CUP think that they're going to, they have to save the empire from collapse. But the way that they can save it is, I think, in this very limited sense. Um, they do never, they never rule out violence as an instrument for power. Oftentimes, uh, during this period from 1908 to 1914, they uh, murder their own opponents, they murder journalists, they are very, even though they try to pretend that they are willing to work within this constitutional framework, you see that they have this, they occupy this sort of hardline position in the empire that we have to centralize. We can't allow, you know, minorities to have their own say in how affairs are are governed in the provinces. Like it all, everything has to kind of be subjugated to the the whims of the central government in Istanbul. And so, uh, I think if you look at that sort of uh, group of people, they they come from like this sort of background where. They don't really pay. They don't really care about. Um, I think like like history or culture too much. I mean, yeah. they uh, they that is not. I think for them, they recognize that it's brute force which ultimately wins wars. You can't pay attention to let's say international law because, as far as they're concerned, the European powers abuse their uh, abuse those international laws in order to. Uh, obtain benefits from the from the empire. Um, the only thing that they really learn is that it's you know violence and forts which continue to which will be which will allow them to to secure um, their um, their rights vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the European powers. And again, you can take a look at like Enver. You can take a look at Talat. These are people who Enver comes from you know military college. Talat himself is a uh, telegraph clerk who within, you know, 10 years is springboarded into a position of the interior minister, arguably the most powerful position in the empire. But I think for them, like all these nice cities, all these ways of kind of running in an empire were just secondary to them. I mean, they wanted to preserve what was left, but it was uh, with the recognition that it would have to come at the expense of Greeks and, I mean, mainly Greeks and Armenians and uh, who they 
I think uh, we're convinced were their greatest rivals. That if you were to allow things to continue apace, then uh, probably the Greeks and Armenians were going to overtake you. Yeah, and become again, the like, majority. Uh, ooh, uh, not take the, not be the majority, but at least they will be able to take control of the reins of. Uh, I mean, like in, in the government, power. majority in the government. That's what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and I think that's why even the genocide takes place. It's. Uh, elimination of a potential rival uh, yeah. that they saw in like Armenians. It wasn't enough to murder Armenians, but it had to be taken to like the Old extra level, level of yeah. confiscating their property, destroying their cultural institutions and their leaders, um, and even erasing their cultural heritage because that's just one less thing that they would be able to claim as legitimating their rights in the country yeah so if you erase everything there's no history there's no identity there's no proof of that they ever existed if there was any it'd be like the ancient egyptians right that someone talks about them like they were if they existed or not so uh but yeah no it's 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 fascinating how that all took place like you said like talat springboarding from his position to that it, it, it's it's fascinating how fast that happened right um and uh you know obviously you you are working on the memoir for uh solomon's uh solomon Telerian and um obviously our introduction was through michael and what he's doing and and we're uh definitely um going to some way uh, be involved in helping to bring the story but do you want to uh, maybe talk about a little bit uh, of how you got involved in Solomon's story and and uh, w what you're working on, what we can expect, and and uh, because obviously, uh, you know, Solomon's sh is such a big part of this history, everything that took place in the Ottoman Empire, uh, especially after the genocide. Yeah, I'll I'll provide a, you know a very condensed version of it. Yeah. Um, I met Michael in Los Angeles at a you know the local Armenian bookstore at uh, April, and just through a you know 10, 15 minute long conversation, I came to understand that he was interested in presenting Telerian's life story in uh, you know the medium of a film. Uh, so I agreed to to work as a his consultant on this project and it uh expanded from this idea of uh of you know just presenting this of you know making a, a film production to also translating the the memoir which was undertaken by um uh, a, a professional translator uh Ishan Jimbashian who did a wonderful job in bringing Tellurian's memoir to to life and Tellurian's memoir is a very fascinating document for a historian and I think it's one of the best memoirs to appear from uh, the people who you know the last Ottoman generation uh, which uh, Tellurian belonged to where uh, he is so uh, aware of the and conscious of the world around him his memoir begins in Serbia, which is where his father and his uncle were living at the time of the outbreak of the First World War, and he travels from there to to Russia so that he can enroll in the um, the Russian uh, these uh, volunteer battalions, which are fighting alongside the Russian army. And then his memoir, you know, uh, goes through the uh, talks about like his tribulations, discovering his family's death during the genocide, and his pursuit for uh, this pursuit of Talat Pasha, which culminates in Berlin with him assassinating him and um, him later being acquitted uh, for the murder. 
or and assassination. So uh, it's a, a very fascinating document because it, I think, is so aware of like what's going on around the world uh, at the time. And um, in order to do it proper justice, uh, I'm co-authoring the introduction of the memoir with two um, very prominent World War One uh, historians, Jay Winner and Robert Gerwarth, and uh, we're trying to present Tellurian in this different context where every I think his life has become so mythologized that it's kind of hard to tell the difference between um, you know the fact from the the fictional elements of it. But we're trying to also place Tellurian in this. Uh, early 20th century world of empires of, uh, of um, him being a very seasoned World War One infantryman, which you know immediately makes him an eligible candidate to take part in this special hit squad, which uh, takes out you know systematically the members of the CUP after the war. Yes. And how that translates into you know the you know the silver screen, I think, is like very challenging because you can watch any number of movies and tv shows which try which are period pieces and how well they're able to capture that is um a question of like how much effort is put into um authenticity and accuracy and um i'm hoping that we'll be able to like my role in it is just like you know saying this is how i've come to understand like things yeah. playing out in the sources yeah. and, you know it's up to you uh to see like whether that's included in the the story or not but uh, yeah, well, it's. Uh... I think I think the you know uh, why one of the reasons why I was drawn to to Michael's idea of what he's doing, what he wants to do, um, is because I believe, uh, and I've mentioned this many times uh, in the podcast that uh, you know uh, storytelling is one thing. I believe that storytelling uh, is 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 so important in our culture. Um, to the masses, to the world in English, but also um, see these stories. If you look at certain historical piece movies, right, um, they try to fit an entire life in two hours, max three hours, because you know obviously the the the, the viewer is going to fall asleep after a while. So um, there's so many movies that, like Alexander the Great, or, or you can name so many that. It, it obviously puts in the, the bullet points of their life, right? But this story is so important and and so many other stories. I mean, we can go back even to tell stories about many queen, kings and queens and warriors we've had. Uh, I think trying to fit that in a, in a two-hour movie, it doesn't do justice. So it has to be told in a series and multiple seasons uh, and, and if you tell the story the right way, if you, if in those spe specific, uh, moments, like you said, like him being a seasoned soldier, right. Uh, it, showing that and talking about it for the viewer to understand is so important. So I, I'm a big believer that any of these stories, and it could be any character, uh, has to be told in a long form for the audience uh, especially the fact that these this is a this is a true event this is a real person right it's not a it's not fiction um so the world who's going to watch this can understand and 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 appreciate what what took place and what happened and why it happened because end of the day this is also a tragic story you know um but yeah it's it's uh, i'm so glad that you're part of this you're you're 
in the short amount of time that I've, I've, I've gotten to know you and learn about you and, and the, the knowledge you have, especially in this era is so, so fascinating. And, uh, one of the questions I have, uh, I know you got to go, it's late over there as well. I know we try to keep it about an hour and a half. So, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, can you share your insights and how the historical experience of the Armenians uh, in the Ottoman Empire have shaped the modern Armenian uh, identity and uh, especially in, in this contemporary society that we live in? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, this was, this is inevitable. I mean, uh, these sort of massive traumatic experiences come to define peoples and follow them long afterward. You can look at the how the shadow of the Holocaust uh, follows uh, Jews, you know, to this very day. And um, I'm sure that a lot of people refuse to accept their label as, you know, as a victim. Uh, but there is that sort of uh, sense that having been victimized uh, previously, it almost seems to sort of anticipate your, your future actions or um, governs so much of your thinking. I think Armenians... Uh, would, because of, again, the genocide's uh, comprehensiveness, because it encompassed more than just, again, as we said, murder, uh, it also had you know, confiscation of your property, of your wealth, almost destroyed, as we would call like this destruction of your memory of even being able to remember it is so hard uh, nowadays. Uh, it comes to almost define you, and it also seems to place you in this sort of... Um, frame of mind that it's now difficult to think about in, in any other term except that traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, again, I think it's not necessarily us trying to um, come up with this sort of nostalgia for empire. We also want to remember and memorialize like how Armenians lived before um, you know, the genocide itself. So uh, I'm not saying that we are necessarily living with this sort of victims uh, 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 complex or something along those lines, but uh, you have to kind of like go beyond uh, the sort of narratives and stories that we were told, especially those narratives which kind of come to take public discourse and how we talk about things uh, um, with one another to uh see like what what was really different like or have things always really been this way or you know are they kind of like recent innovations or recent ways of kind of thinking about it? if that answers your question i'm not sure if, yeah um, yeah I'm i mean it, it, it does in a way and and you know you talked about the the the, the victim complex you know it's um i think that i i don't know if it's a victim uh, <laughs> Maybe it is a victim complex, but it's more about the fact that uh, till this day that, you know, uh, it, it and this is not about other countries recognizing and they have and we're grateful for that. It's the fact that the, that the people who did this to us till this day are denying it. So that that I think that pain is so strong and carries through generations and generations. And I think that's where that feeling of victimhood comes in. Um, but we also, as Armenians, I think we, we can't let that be our, uh, the flag that we carry with us. You know, it's, uh, we need to mm. figure out a way how to, to, um, 
to use it for our advantage and, and move forward. Never forget, still make sure that, you know, I don't think we will ever, Armenians will ever give up the fight of until Turkey itself, uh, you know, uh, accepts what was done to us and uh, uh, start for them to stop falsifying our own history, their own history, which is itself like, you know, it's like, okay, that was the Ottoman Empire. It's not Turkey now, but it seems like they're even with their current leaders and their sister countries. They're continuing the same kind of uh, system, which is that hatred towards Armenians. The, the, well, I mean, that's because those continuities uh, were kind of built into the DNA of today's uh, modern Republic of Turkey. You have, I mean, there's historians who've done research and uh, demonstrated that even though the CUP dissolved as a organization with, you know, alongside the empire, uh, many of its members went on to occupy very important positions in um, the new new Republic of Turkey. And so it stood to reason that these individuals would be very disinclined to be reminded of crimes they may have been implicated in. Yeah. Um, and that they would have they would do their best to sort of blot out that history. And, you know, to a certain degree, they've been very successful in it. And um, you can just imagine how things were 25 years ago without like, you know, access to Wikipedia and, um, you know, social media, which has like revolutionized the way that we access information. Um, I mean, it was so much more limited uh, at that time. And, um, you know. I can understand like where that uh, impulse to order, you know, churches to be demolished or history books to be published and distorted in this way, or uh, textbooks to be written in a way where you're educating your populace with a very specific, uh, it's not just the way that you're telling the history, but like what sort of message are you imparting to them? You're yeah. telling them that, you know, we were backstabbed during the war, and you know because of that, we cannot uh, rely on anybody else. Definitely not the minorities in our country, uh, but like we can't even rely on Europe or America. Like Turkey carves its own path toward um, you know is, you know establishing itself, and that's something which historians have argued has really um, guided Turkish leaders from its very founding to the present day. Yeah. Yeah, very, very true. Very true. Um, David has another um, question for you. He was asking, I don't know if you can see it in chat. It says, in remembrance of Harald Dink's uh, assassination 17 years ago this month, how does Armin feel about his legacy and imprints in Turkish society and politics? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question. Um, obviously, Harald Dink's death sent shockwaves in Turkey uh, in 2007. Um, there's just this moment where you would see, where you did see, uh, you know, massive numbers of Turks uh, show up in in public demonstrations um, because they were so shocked by uh, his death. And there was this moment that, and you heard from, you can hear from many Turks who uh, immediately afterward that was like the one inciting incident which uh, forced them to try to come to grips with the country's past. Now, when I come to think of it, I mean, uh, you, it's like, as David says, it's been 17 years. 
um, his memory has kind of faded away, and, uh, and especially in modern Turkish political culture today, like it really does not figure at all. They never really, I mean, they carried out uh, some investigations and put some people on trial, including the, the gunman. But as everybody knew at the time as well, you know, this wasn't just uh, one guy who's motiv- motivated by hatred, yeah. you know, like yeah, it, was, it wasn't the uh, you know uh, one gun you know so one gunman theory, uh, but like there was probably institutions, um, whether it's the intelligence agencies or the military or politics uh, or political leaders. I mean, it was something which clearly uh, had a conspiratorial tone to it. Now you think about it, you do wonder in that time span how much has Turkey changed and has it really changed for the better? Has it backslid under? Um, now President Erdogan's, um, you know, last 20 years in in power. Um, You wonder if that progress has kind of been rolled back since then. It's a a very sobering uh, question, to be honest, and I I can't say if um, things will necessarily get any better in the future, which is, again, a very disheartening thing to to say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, mean, you see... the way Erdogan is leading the country, it's it's kind of you know uh, almost like they're going backwards instead of forward. Um, it's very uh, it's uh, you know disheartening seeing yeah. that, uh, and and you know it's 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 sad for the Turkish people themselves. They themselves have to come one day when that shock hits them that their own history was falsified. You know it's gonna happen it's gonna one way or another. You can't keep hiding this. Um, but, uh, I, again, I, I know it's late for you. It's, it's, uh, past midnight. Uh, but, um, I want to thank everybody who's joined us, uh, live on YouTube, Facebook, and X. Uh, we had a great conversation. I have one last question for you. And this question is, if you had a time machine, what what period of Armenian history would want to, I know you love, you know, you, you specialize in the Ottoman empire uh but would you was there a time period you would love to go witness if we were able to give you a time machine and why uh maybe i don't know i I guess i would like to be transported back to uh like 10th or 11th century constantinople uh and of course this is a time when there was still uh a more or less independent Armenian kingdom. So there's a lot of interactions between Armenian, like very famously, the, the current dome of the Hagia Sophia Cathedral. Uh, um, the Byzantine era. Yeah. yeah, in 989, suffers an earthquake, and it's an Armenian architect who's invited yeah. to come uh, redesign the, the new, new dome, yeah. and which is stood after all these years. So it's this interesting period, I guess, of like... Um, Byzantine prosperity, and uh, you know, within a century, that's uh, when also the empire comes under the attack of uh, the Seljuk Turks and other yeah. Turkic tribes. Uh, and yeah. so, Abbasids, was, like, and, yeah, yeah, the Abbasids were kind of like the were not a major political player in the the region at that time. But um, yeah, I guess it was a, a little. I mean, I wouldn't want to be like fighting an army or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, during that time, but, it was, guess, but the Bagratuni uh, reign was kind of, you know, taking charge. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dur- during the so when Ani becomes a, a very yeah yeah mass, you know massive sprawling city. 
Yeah, we just finished that whole era with the Bagratunis. So we're we're prepping to go into the Cilician Armenian kingdom. So uh, that's coming soon. But um, is there anything you might want to you want to share? Announce anything special that you're working on uh, for? And also, where can people follow you? Um, no big announcements on my end, but um, I am uh, active on Twitter, and that's when I occasionally like offer my takes on mainly on history related stuff. I don't comment too much on politics because it's not really my it's not really my specialty but like occasionally if i ever see something you know like a bad historical take i'm like oh this is a moment for me to to correct it or maybe i might share like photos or something like that just to um give like people like an idea of like how things looked in the past and yeah. it's yeah. meant to be uh um different oh well as michael mentioned i guess yeah it even slipped my mind i'm teaching a class this semester at georgetown and um the class is something which I designed, uh, which was approved by uh, our program. And the class is uh, based on, uh, or is uh, centered on World War I in the Middle East and in Europe. And so every week we, with my students, we just read a, a different set of articles and primary sources, like contemporary documents, that is, and uh, we explore a particular theme, like um, humanitarianism, like um, the Paris Peace Conference talks after the war, and yeah, it's uh, going pretty well. Uh, my students are very bright, and they're very eager, and they're very um, fascinated by this uh, period. And I have, like read occasionally stuff about Armenians too. So, wow, uh, that's glad great. That's great. Getting them to know this history through through this channel. Well, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. It's very important, and and you know, the more you educate the um, the uh, other cultures about our, our history and what took place it's very important so we are uh thankful to you we are thankful for michael introducing us to introducing us to you um and i i want to thank you for for doing this so late um it, it means a lot to us and next time you're in la we're going to do this live and uh go deeper into it i know we this was kind of like scratching the surface there's so much we need to discuss in detail but we wanted to kind of uh again we have a lot of surprises coming up and we wanted to kind of scratch the surface of of, of the ottoman uh, empire and the armies that live there but we're going to do a lot more in, in detail and have you back on as a guest great thank you so much for for having me on no problem you have a enjoy the well go get some sleep <laughs> and uh i know you gotta wake up early so again thank you and have a great night good night thank you everyone all right, everyone, that was Armin, uh, who is a, a, a very, very um, amazing young historian who is doing great work for the Armenian community, um, and we are proud uh, of him. And uh, I want to thank everybody who joined us live uh, tonight on YouTube, Facebook, and X. Thank you, everyone, who was in the chat, who... Um, you know the questions uh we love the fact that you guys are engaging with our 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 uh, guests with us we appreciate you joining us if you guys uh uh want to follow us on instagram it's at medhedosned um if uh you guys want to support the show you guys see that little qr code on the corner that takes you to our patreon page you guys can support us there by becoming a patreon it it helps the show um 
what else? And if you guys, you see that little sculpture right here of uh, Kaj Vartan, Vartan Mamikonya and the Great Warrior, you guys can go to our website, which is medhedosnej.com and purchase there. We also have many other sculptures. We have the new sculpture of Haik Nahapet coming soon. It is in production as soon as uh, it's ready. Uh, as I mentioned before, this uh, all the proceeds from that is going to go to Hike for Our Heroes. So, um, and that's going to help with the other fundraiser we're doing. So again, guys, please, please help us with the fundraiser on YouTube. You should see it. It says hike for our heroes. This is the, uh, water infrastructure project, uh, uh, that is going to help, um, you know, uh, this little village, uh, in, in Lori, uh, which hasn't had a water system since for fi over 15 years. Um, uh, it's a dire situation. So this is what we're working on. And the goal is to do these type of small projects. You know, this project's going to cost between maybe ten to thirty thousand dollars. We're trying to raise ten on our part um, to help these villages. To uh, I mean, it's a basic necessity: water. So, please go ahead and uh, support uh, this great organization. A hike for our heroes and we have a lot more announcements coming up we have a, a major announcements coming up with uh michael um so we're very very excited besides that uh again thank you for joining us uh we have a very special show next week uh the two gentlemen who are holding up the resistance in jerusalem at cow's garden will be joining us live from jerusalem we're going to have a very very interesting conversation so we encourage everybody to join us live next thursday 7 30 p.m uh we'll announce it on instagram uh once uh everything's ready for next week uh besides that thank you for joining us today as we always say at the end of every show respect one another love one another until the next episode take care of yourselves